Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver, and today we will be talking about another fucking bum that Jaime Munguia knocked out just a few hours ago in Mexico. I will have an extended question and answer session as that Mugia fiasco was the only uh, quote-unquote significant fight of this past weekend. And then I will go into my historical overview of the 15th greatest fighter of the last 45 years in my 45 greatest fighters of the last 45 years series, the legendary Michael Spinks. But before I get into the program, a couple of couple of uh couple of things I want to plug on Fight Game Media Network. First, YouTube. The check out and subscribe to the Fight Game Media YouTube page when it comes to instant and breaking news on everything professional wrestling. Fight Game Media Network is the YouTube page to subscribe to and to follow. You've got great journalists like Mike Gilbert and J.D. Oliva and the CEO Garrett Gonzalez and several others that give you breaking news on WWE, NWA, AEW. AEW just had another big pay-per-view last night with a... Long Island, New York's own MJF becoming a one the becoming a world champion for the first time, the brand new AEW world champion. Well, Fight Game Media on YouTube is going to have extensive and exclusive coverage of his victory. And also, while I'm at it, for five dollars a month, you you can subscribe, and the link is in the the, the description of this podcast. The Fight Game Media Patreon podcast page in which you get my greatest upsets in boxing history. Uh, Garrett Gonzalez and I uh, did a complete overview and review of the controversial Hulu Mike Tyson docuseries and more exclusive coverage of AEW, MLW, WWE, NWA, Impact, and for you uh, mixed martial art art fans out there, you have exclusive coverage on Bellator and UFC. So, wanted to plug that before we get begin with the program. By the way, I'll be recording my next greatest upset in boxing history exclusively on the Fight Game Patreon only. This week, this Thanksgiving week, as I will be chronicling Cassius Clay, who would then become Muhammad Ali just a few days later, incredible upset of Sonny Liston from February 25th, 1964. Now, now, on to Jaime Mangaya's Ridiculous fight. I mean, Jaime Mangaya c- continues to fight bum after bum after bum 
since he moved up to 160 pounds. Now, at 154, he defeated some solid fighters. But at 160, he hasn't fought anybody. All right? Don't give me that Gabriel Rosado bullshit. He's a jobber to the stars. Get the fuck out of here. He's fought bum after bum after bum. If your best win at 160 is Gabriel Rosado, what the hell are we doing? What the hell is Oscar De La Hoya, The Zone, Sanford Promotions? What are these guys doing? This guy is looking to not face anybody until he gets the big money fight with Canelo Alvarez. And Mungaya is one-dimensional. He's looking to knock you out with one shot. And, of course, this bummy beat up, Gonzalo Correa, who's a bum. Hey, you're 22-5-1, no one ever heard of you, and you get to fight a so-called legit title, world title contender, and once again, the zone pisses me off with the announcing team claiming, oh, he's one of the best middleweights in the world. He's one of the top middleweights in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been following boxing since 1977. My, the first professional fight I ever saw I was eight years old in January of 1977. Right. And, and when I first started watching boxing, the middleweight champion of the world was the greatest middleweight I've ever seen in Carlos Monzon. It was the end of his era in 1977. Three years later, we had the marvelous Marvin Hagler era. Hagler retired in 87 after his controversial loss to Sugar Ray Leonard. And then you had an era where you had the richest talent in middleweight history. Middle After Marvin Hagler retired, you had middleweights that were trading the belts and trading the top spot in the middleweight division like Mike McCollum, Michael Nunn, Sumbu Columbay, Roy Jones Jr., James Toney. And then throwing uh, Chris Eubank, Nigel Benn, Steve Collins, Reggie Johnson. That middleweight division from 1988 to 1994 was incredible. And then out of the rubble of that middleweight division rose Bernard Hopkins, who from 1995 to 2005 dominated the middleweight division with 20 title defenses, and become an undisputed middleweight champion of the world. Then, after Jermaine Taylor self-destructed when he looked like he was going to be a dominant champion and lost to Kelly Pavlik, and then Kelly Pavlik lost to Sergio Martinez, you had Sergio Martinez have a nice run as the lineal middleweight champion, and on the other side, you had an up-and-coming Triple G who was looked to be the boogeyman. And then that's where it ended. Miguel Cotto beat Sergio Martinez. Canelo beat Cotto. Uh, Canelo beat Triple G. And now the middleweight division is horrid with a decrepit Triple G holding most of the belts. Uh, a 90-year-old Erislan De Lara. Uh, Charlo, who hasn't faced anybody at 160. And this fucking clown, Jaime Mungaya, Mungia. Enough said on the middleweight division. Enough said on Jaime Mungaya. His jab is pathetic. The minute he fights an elite fighter, 
he will fe- he will be exposed. Forty one and zero. He's undefeated in forty one fights, being protected like his name is Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the next guy he fights. He fights. He's fighting other steps. All right. On to the Q and A portion of the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. If you want your questions answered, if you have any questions, it doesn't just have to be boxing. It could be uh, sports related, relationship related, life related. Ask me and I'll give you my unadulterated version of my truth. <laughs> now, you know, but if you want to ask questions, hashtag on Twitter, hashtag ask Rob Silva. Um, and, um, oh man, this brother, I have known uh, uh, this brother, my longtime buddy from the UK. Uh, he's one of the first guys I, I ever connected with from um england on social media i connected him through the old wrestling observer what you call it uh board the board the listener board uh and that's mark Rent from the united kingdom and we've been we've been friends for over a decade matter of fact when he came to uh new york to visit Damn, about about yeah, ten years ago, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen, around that time, he and I had lunch together out in um Penn Station in New York City, and um we had a we had a grand old time. All right, Mark Ren asked, "What are my top five boxing ring announcers of all time?" And this is easy. This is easy, and all five of these guys, in my opinion, belong in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. A couple are in already. I believe all five deservedly belong in. But only, I think, two of these five are in at the moment. Number five is Ed Darien. Ed Darien, great East Coast ring announcer, Atlantic City, throughout New York State, throughout Connecticut. Ed Darien, and you saw him all the time on Friday Night Fights, the old ESPN TV show. You saw him on the USA Network Tuesday Night Fights. Ed Darien, without the pompous circumstances, he wasn't going in and trying to blow you away. He said the name's correct, and he was straightforward. And when you looked at him, he brought credibility to any fight he was the ring announcer to. If Ed Darien was a ring announcer for your fight, you were on a solid, if not great, boxing card, and you were in a solid, but not, if not great, fight. Ed Darien, my number five greatest ring announcer in boxing history. Number four is Mr. Let's Get Ready to Rumble. I know he's number one on a lot of guys' list. Uh, uh, Michael Buffer, to me, only reason he's on my top five is because he's been the ring announcer for more legendary fights than any other ring announcer in boxing history. He brings a certain element to your fights. He brings an element of class because he's a he's always sharp dressed and good looking dude. And he's got that voice. Let's get ready to rumble! <coughs> I almost had a heart attack trying to say that shit. <laughs> anyway, Michael Buffer, number four. Um, a lot of people's number ones, but he's in my top five and deservedly in the International Boxing Hall of Fame because uh, 
He is without a doubt the single most famous ring announcer in boxing history. And that goes that goes a long way in making my list. Number three, Jimmy Lennon Jr. Jimmy Lennon Jr. is the spitting image of his father. He is the spitting uh, vocally, he sounds like his father. He's classy like his father. Jimmy Lennon Jr. is my number three and probably number two behind Michael Buffer in terms of being the ring announcer for the most legendary fights in boxing history. For years, he was the voice of Showtime. Still is. But for years, he was Don King's main ring announcer after Don King broke away from HBO. Remember when Don King was with, with HBO, Michael Buffer was the pro- a prominent ring announcer throughout Don King's stay at HBO when he was HBO's in-house uh, boxing promoter. Then when he became Showtime's in-house boxing promoter, it was Jimmy Lennon Jr. And Jimmy Lennon Jr. was the ring announcer for several legendary fights throughout the 90s. And, I mean, for the last 35 years, Jimmy Lennon Jr. has had a phenomenal career. And I put him above Michael Buffer because of that. Jimmy Lennon Jr., my number three. My number two is... The guy who, when I first started watching boxing, he was Mr. Las Vegas. He was Mr. Big Fight. He was the original Mr. Big. He was Michael Buffer before Michael Buffer. Jimmy Lennon Jr. before Jimmy Lennon Jr. When it came to being a ring announcer at the big, big Las Vegas fights. And that is Chuck Hall. The WBC. Heavyweight champion of the world, Larry Holmes. Chuck Hall was Michael Buffer without the popping circumstance. When Chuck Hall was your ring announcer, you got professionalism, you got a golden voice, and you got a guy that you could tell was born to announce your favorite fighters and he throughout the 1970s to mid 80s he was the man before michael buffer took the mantle he was the ring announcer for all the great larry holmes fights when larry holmes was the heavyweight champion of the world chuck hall was the ring announcer when sugar ray leonard was the main man in boxing Late 70s to early 80s, Chuck Hall was the ring announcer. When Roberto Duran was massacring people at lightweight and, and into the early, and, and then when he beat uh, when he, when he, when he beat Sugar Ray Leonard, and then years later, Chuck Hall was the main ring announcer. Chuck Hall, the ring announcer of my childhood when I first started watching boxing in 1977, Chuck Hall was that dude. He was Mr. Las Vegas, Mr. Big Fight in Las Vegas before Michael Buffer. And my greatest ring announcer of all time, Jimmy Lennon Sr. And now, I only saw Jimmy Lennon Sr. as a kid a few times before he went into retirement and his son took over. But Jimmy Lennon Sr. Had, in my opinion, the greatest voice any boxing ring announcer ever had. 
Rodolfo Elgato Gonzalez. Jimmy Lennon Jr. was class. He had a distinct voice that his son has damn near copied to a T. He was just great. And he had a he was tall and he had a striking presence when he was on, on when when he would announce the fighters and when he had in my opinion when he read the scorecards and he would go the new have I'm not going to imitate his voice anymore because my my throat hurts but Jimmy Lennon Senior who is not in the International Boxing Hall of Fame they need to rectify that ASAP because that's criminal his son's in but he's not in. It doesn't make sense. Please rectify that. Get him in next year. The vote comes up in a month. I hope they vote him in this time because it doesn't make any goddamn sense. So those are my uh, Mark Rand, my five greatest boxing announcers, boxing ring announcers of all time. Now, longtime listener LL School K has several questions. So let me take it at. Uh, let me take one at a time. Okay, first question. He says, in my opinion, in order to make it to the big time or get recognition by promoters in boxing today, you either have to be a lightweight or welterweight if you're coming out the amateurs to be a pro. What's your thoughts? What's my thoughts? Well, I've said this a million times on several different shows I've done. The most talent-laden division in the history of boxing is the welterweight division. And that still holds true to this day. Because at welterweight today, Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford, two of the top five fighters in the world. You've got, in my opinion, the most explosive fighter not yet to be a world champion in Jerome Boots Ennis. you got a up-and-coming slugger in Virgil Ortiz. The welterweight division is stacked. And... It has been stacked since 1977 when I first became a child. When I, when as an eight-year-old child, I started watching boxing. When I first started watching boxing in 1977, the WBA champion was Pepino Cuevas. The WBC champion was Carlos Palomino, both members of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Then you had the Four Kings era, and you had great world champions, Hall of Famers, all-time great fighters, and Wilfred Benitez, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns Then you had the period Where Donald Curry was the main man At welterweight He's in the International Box Hall of Fame After Sugar Ray Leonard retired And Thomas Hearns moved up To junior middleweight Then after Donald Curry Lost to Lloyd Hunnigan You had a few years Where the division was uh, Trading places with Marlon Stalin Lloyd Hunnigan Um Mark Breelan, Aaron Davis, and so forth, until you had that 1990s golden era of welterweights, just like the Four Kings era, where you had great welterweight champions like Sweet P. Whitaker, Felix Tito Trinidad, Oscar De La Hoya, Ike Corte. Man, the 90s was special. Special! Then you had another lull in the 2000s. Uh, Zab Judah would eventually become undisputed champion of the world, beating the undisputed champion of the world in Corey Spinks, Leon Spinks's uh, son and the nephew of my subject, my historical overview subject today, Michael Spinks. But then after that lull, the Corey Spinks, Zab Judah era, 
you had the Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao era, another legendary era in welterweight history. Because during that era, you had not only Floyd and Manny, you had a lot of guys trying to beat them that couldn't beat them until Floyd beat Manny. Because don't don't tell me, I'm not counting Timothy Bradley's gift horror decision over Manny Pacquiao. And then after Floyd retired, now you got the Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford uh, era in which you have a lot of great young welterweights trying to beat the two guys that have been the king of the division for the last four or five years. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, my uh, uh, rundown of the history of the welterweight division since I was a, a kid. And you're right, uh, L- uh, LL. When coming out the amateurs right now, in order for you to really, 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 really shine, I agree that you have to be either a lightweight. Look at the lightweights today. The lightweights with Tank Davis, Ryan Garcia, Shakur Stevenson, Lomachenko, and the undisputed lightweight champion of the world, Devin Haney. And then you got the up-and-comers like Mitchell Rivera and Frank Martin that will be fighting each other. All right. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Great question, LL. Next question by LL, because he's got a couple. Okay. How would you describe the demographics of boxing today? I think Latinos are dominating more by 70 to 30 due to a lot of black athletes veering towards NFL or NBA. Is boxing the Mexican sport like De La Hoya once said? If you look at the landscape today in boxing... I think it's at it's it's right now a lot of the world champions are from the Orient especially uh Japan I have never seen so many great Japanese fighters as we see today I mean Japan since I was a kid Japan and before Japan has produced many great great uh world champions Fighting Harada and Yoko Gushikin, uh, Miguel, uh, those were two of the ones that right away uh, come off the top of my head from when I first started watching boxing in 1977. But today, you got Kenshiro, of course, my number one pound for pound fighter in the world, Monster Noe. You you got so many great Nakatani. You got so many very good to great Japanese fighters, and in my opinion, it's the most talent at one time Japan has ever produced in an era. And of course, you got a plethora of Mexican world champions and Mexican contenders, and uh, Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe has so many good fighters, and you have a lot of fighters from East. Eastern Europe, like a Beck the Bully and Janet Beck from last week, that are overrated, severely flawed, and not that good. And of course, you have the Eastern Europeans like uh, Vas- Vas- Vasilo Machenko and Usyk, who are, who are first ballot Hall of Famers. So, uh, as far as black American fighters go, you got Errol Spence, Terrence Crawford, Shakur Stevenson, Devin Haney. <sighs> Man, uh, the Charlo brothers, you know, all those guys are great fighters. Uh, But you're right. They pale in comparison to not only Mexican fighters, but fighters from all over the world. And as far as the 
NBA or NFL uh, analogy goes, the reason why you haven't had many great American heavyweights in the last 40 years is because those same athletes that at one time would become boxers, like a LeBron James, like name any tight end in the, uh, in, in the NFL, they have gone to play football and basketball because it's more lucrative. Remember LL in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was more lucrative to be a boxer than a point guard or a shooting guard or a small forward or a power forward or a tight end or a running back or a right receiver, all right? Or, or it, it was more lucrative to be a boxer for, for, for up-and-coming black athletes. Now, it's not the case. And for... for Damn, for damn near for damn near a hundred years, the highest paid athlete in the world was the heavyweight champion of the world. That is no longer the case. <sighs> Look at what LeBron is gonna make alone this year and his contract, his Nike deal, all the ventures he's in. Forget about it. Alright, so it's economics more more so than anything else. Uh LL. But once again, another great question. Let me answer your last question. And you sent this to my email, so let me go to my email. You guys can email me also any questions. Robert Silver57 at hotmail.com. And his question is Hey, what's up, Rob? So I do not like this idea of Tank having a fight on January 7th. This guy that he's fighting, Hector Garcia, a former 130 pound contender, I think it's just too risky. I don't like when fighters take tunes before a mega fight. It could potentially kill the momentum if the top guy gets upset by the underdog. Mark my words, come April, if Ryan beats Tank, people are going to be making excuses for him. Saying that Tank was not 100% because he fought earlier and that his last fight took a lot out of him. Your thoughts? You make good, solid points here, Lalo. But um, I'm not going to discourage Tank from fighting a very good fighter in Hector Garcia. All right, Hector Garcia is better than Barrios, Leo Santa Cruz, uh, Isaac Cruz. He's better than all those guys that uh, Tank has fought recently. Isaac Cruz is a one-dimensional brawler. I don't want to hear this shit. People are hyping him up. Tank Davis fought with a broken hand for half the fight. Don't give me that bullshit, all right? Isaac Cruz refused to fight Shakur Stevenson. Shakur Stevenson would have mopped his ass up. Don't give me that bullshit about Isaac Cruz, ladies and gentlemen. Also, I I admire the fact that Tank is is uh fighting more often than his uh, contemporaries. And kudos to him. And also, you got to take into account, LL, that... He has a trial in February that if he's convicted, that ain't that 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 Ryan Garcia fight might not happen. Right? So get a payday against Hector Garcia, which is going to be a million plus. And if he beats and gets if he beats the the, the verdict and gets acquitted, he's got another big fight with Ryan Garcia. Look, I am not going to ridicule or criticize somebody for fighting real fighters. Hector Garcia exposed Chris Colbert. Hector Garcia's got a great chin. He's a tough fighter. 
I'll save my prediction on the fight the week it happens. But kudos to uh, Tank for taking this tune-up fight. And I don't consider it a tune-up. This real fight before he fights Ryan Garcia. Because the way I see it is the winner fights Ryan Garcia because it's not a given Tank is going to beat Hector Garcia. And let's say your scenario comes true, that he beats Hector in a tough fight, then loses to Ryan Garcia. No fucking excuses. You're supposed to fight good fighters. No, I don't want to hear no excuses. Oh, well, this guy took a lot of them. That's why he didn't beat. Nah, fuck that. You fight who you're supposed to fight. You fight the best fighters, period. Once again, LL, thank you for your great contribution. Um, Now on to back to Ask Rob Silver. Whew, we got a ton of questions this week. So let me make sure I don't lose my page. Back to Ask Rob Silver. All right, here we go. I lost the page for a second, but I'm back. All right. Well, I answered I answered those questions last week. Let's see. I answered that question last week. Hmm. Oh, okay, here we go. My brother Carl. Carl Carl. Fellow New Yorker. Carl asked. 15 round title fights A 13 round will be considered bad luck Considering the old buildings That skip 13th floor How do you feel about extending around Calling it the closing ultimate round With adjusted scoring In close fights with an extra round It wouldn't decrease fighter safety In my It wouldn't decrease fighter safety In my opinion Um Carl Back in the 1980s there was a 13th round tiebreaker. And I'm trying to remember, what was it? Uh, off the top of my head, it was either the USBA or NABF. That if the fight, it was either the United States Boxing Association or North American Boxing Federation. I forget which which one it was. Early signs didn't mention that. After 12 rounds, if the fight was a draw, they would go to a 13th round. All right. And in some cases, they would go 13th, 14th, and 15th round, three extra rounds. And the winner after the 15th round would be, would be the, uh, if there was no KO, would be the winner of the fight that was draw after 12 rounds. But I have no problems with a 13th round. But what you have to do in order for this to occur, and I'm all for it, and I'm hoping that one day we will get an official 13th round from all these fraudulent boxing um, alphabet uh, organizations. If the fight is close... I'm not even after 12 rounds because the guy could be winning every round and you never know with these crooked judges. But don't don't take the don't take the gloves off when when the once this rule is instituted a 13th round tiebreaker after the end of the 12th round have both fighters go back to their corners sit down with their gloves intact and then have the and this will this will oh this will tell the 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 viewers and the fans in attendance that it's not a draw. Have them sit down, have the ring announcer and the referee 
look over the scorecards from the three judges, and if it's not a draw, point to the point to the fighters, have their gloves taken off, and then they get in the middle of the ring, and the ring announcer will announce a clear-cut winner. So find out first if the fight is not a draw. If the fight is not a draw, then you go ahead and take the gloves off, and then the, the ring announcer can announce the result. If it is a draw, keep the fighters sitting in their corner, and the ring, ring announcer will read off the, the scorecards and say the fight is a draw. We're now going to the 13th round, and the three judges will decide who won this round. And whoever gets two of the three score, uh, 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 two of the three judges to to give them that round wins the fight. Period. End of story. Great question as always, Carl. Let me see if there's any more Ask Rob Silver questions on here. Okay, my brother Eli. My my nephew Eli, what's up, Eli? Eli asks, currency over legacy for sure. Hold on, wait, 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 wait. Currency over legacy for sure. Let me win a, a championship or two and get out with my faculties intact with millions low. I want to be able to talk to my kids, play with them, etc. You guys see what happens to all-time great fighters. Eli, that's a that that that's a great theory, but in order for you to get the currency over the legacy, you have to beat great fighters to be able to cherry pick. You're talking about an interview Floyd Mayweather said recently where um he was defending Tank and getting currency over legacy. Well you see now that Tank is beginning to fight real fighters because his next two fighters, Hector Garcia and Ryan Garcia, are real fighters, better fighters than the guys he's beaten the last two years. Currency over legacy, but you got to have a legacy to get that currency. Floyd Mayweather is the greatest junior lightweight of all time. Why? Because he beat great junior lightweights like Hinero Hernandez, Diego Corrales. He mopped the floor with those guys, right? Then at lightweight, after a couple of tough fights with Jose Luis Castillo, he had a small run. He had a cup of coffee at junior welterweight, but at welterweight, he was given hell by Zab Judah and Oscar De La Hoya. He had a, and then when he became the man at 147, he could cherry pick and fight whoever he wanted to fight. Still, he had some tough fights with Miguel Cotto and uh, Marcos Madonna, and so forth. Even Shane Mosley hurt him. So you could get, you could say currency over legacy, but in order to get to the currency, you have to have a legacy. One. Does not go without the other. Where you go? You can't fight stiffs all your life. So, yeah, once you get in the position that Canelo's in right now, or Floyd was in, or Manny Pacquiao was in, or Muhammad Ali or Sugar Ray Leonard, but in order to get to that position, you gotta beat the Sonny Listons and Joe Frazier's and George Foreman's and Roberto Duran's and Thomas Hearns and Wilfred Benitez's. All right, another question. This is from Skis, my, my nephew Skis, Skis Stifler on Twitter. And Skis asks, Raging Bull or Ali? There, no comparison. Will Smith and Ali and why he got an Oscar nomination for 
best actor for this movie made no fucking sense to me. None whatsoever. Because Will Smith and Muhammad Ali sounded like a Philadelphia cat trying to do a Louisville accent. While in one night in Miami, the young brother from Canada that played Ali had Ali's Louisville accent down. He had Ali's mannerisms down. He had Ali. He was born to play Ali, not Will Smith. Will Smith and Will Smith spent 12 to 18 months hanging out with Muhammad Ali. Why? It didn't help. Raging Bull was Jake was Jake LaMotta. Being portrayed by Robert De Niro Like De Niro was Jake LaMotta De Niro Embodied all of LaMotta's Violence All of LaMotta's mannerisms All of uh, uh, LaMotta's uh, Physical attributes He gained weight for this role He walked around He walked like Jake LaMotta Everything He was Jake LaMotta it's no contest. Raging Bull is one of the five greatest movies I've ever seen in my lifetime. In my opinion, it's De Niro's greatest performance, and he won the Oscar for that movie. He was phenomenal. No co- Comparing Raging Bull to Ali Skis is like comparing R.J. Barrett to Steph Curry. And I'm going to leave it at that. My final questions will be from my buddy, Nice Guy Eddie, another loyal listener. Let me get to Nice Guy Eddie's questions because he DM'd me those and I've got them dig down deep in the... Oh, here we go. Here we go. He gave me a list of WBC ordered mandatories. All right. He asked me, is this... Is this the one of is this one of the situations where the fights are ordered but not necessarily mandatory, so they don't mean much? Uh, you, you're right about that. Let me let me list the, the fights that were ordered, and I'll tell you which ones are going to happen and which ones aren't. Deontay Wilder versus Andy Ruiz. That fight's going to happen. Both men are PBC fighters. Both men won the fight. That fight's going to happen sometime probably before April. Errol Spence versus Keith Thurman. That fight's going to happen, being that the Crawford Spence fight is not happening. So that fight will definitely happen. David Benavides versus Caleb Plant. I believe that fight signed, so it's going to happen. Shakur Stevenson versus Isaac Cruz. Cruz doesn't want to fight Stevenson. He, he already made excuses. Oh, he runs too much, motherfucker. Whether he ran or if his arm is tied behind his back, you're not going to hit him. Get the fuck out of here. Teofimo Lopez versus Sandor Martin. That fight is happening. Sebastian Fundura versus Tony Harrison. I hope that fight happens. I don't know if it's going to happen. Fundura may not want to fight the great Tony the Tiger from um, Detroit. And Stephen Fulton versus Brandon Figueroa too. I think that fight will happen. Um, I met Stephen at the Deontay Wilder fight in Brooklyn with his sexy-ass girlfriend. His girlfriend is the type of woman I've been dating since 1987. So kudos to uh, to a cool boy Steph, cause he's got the same type ty- type of taste in women that I do. <laughs> uh, I love a brother that that can get with a big button a smile. Yeah, that fight will definitely happen. So the only fight in this list, 
that's not going to happen is Shakur versus Isaac Cruz because uh, the pit bull is a chihuahua. He's not fighting no fucking Shakur Stevenson. He'll get his ass kicked. So, Eddie, thank you. Thank all the listeners for this incredible uh, question and answer session that I just uh, endured through. These were a lot of great questions. All right, now on to my 15th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Michael Spinks. Coming out of the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal, Michael Spinks was content on taking care of his mother and supporting his brother Leon's pro career while working at a St. Louis chemical factory despite winning a gold medal like Leon did. This all changed in 1978 after Leon lost the world heavyweight title back to Muhammad Ali. As Leon's behavior became more and more erratic, Michael decided it was time to take his own pro career seriously. Michael's first major victory occurred in just his 14th fight, a huge seventh-round technical knockout win over perennial 175-pound contender Yaki Lopez on October 18, 1980. That fight was the fight that convinced my father that Michael was for real. Lopez had given Matthew Saad Muhammad and Victor Galenis hell when fighting for their versions of the world light heavyweight title. After Spinks dismantled Lopez, my father felt at that point in time that Spinks was the best light heavyweight on the planet. It would take less than a year for Spinks to prove my father right. On March 28, 1981, Spinks fought former two-time 175-pound champion Marvin Johnson, the winner to receive a shot at the WBA champion Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. Spinks at six foot two always attempted to fight tall and with his potent left jab and even more potent right cross, keeping his always shorter opposition at bay. Johnson was a five foot five foot ten softball who was one of the most aggressive fighters in the history of the division. For the first three rounds, Johnson had the advantage by pressuring Spinks on the inside. Then in the fourth round, Johnson walked into a screeching left uppercut that put the Indianapolis native out the pasture. Spinks had her had earned the right to fight for a 175-pound title by stopping both Lopez and Johnson, the boogeymen of the division. My father was a big fan of then-WBA champion Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. He loved Muhammad's counterpunching acumen and patience. He knew Spinks was a better fighter and expected Spinks to win because he thought Eddie's style was too passive to defeat Spinks' style of constant jabbing. Once again, Spinks proved my father right in his, in his assessment. The first 10 rounds were, were very close as Mustafa was able to successfully counter Spinks' jab several times. However, beginning in round 11, Spinks began to assume command of the fight as he had all but closed Muhammad's left eye. In round 12, Spinks knocked down Muhammad with his patented right cross, aptly named the Spinks Jinx. The remaining three rounds saw Muhammad in survival mode as Spinks outworked him en route to a unanimous decision in capturing the WBA crown. Over the next 18 months, Spinks successfully defended his crown five times in relatively easy fashion. Then right as he was training for the biggest fight of his career, a 175-pound unification title fight with WBC champion Dwight Muhammad Quarry, tragedy struck. Two months before the scheduled March 18, 1983 fight, with Kwawi, Spinks' wife Sandy was killed in a car crash. Boxing fans and experts weren't sure if the Kwawi fight would go on as scheduled. Despite a heavy heart, Spinks didn't pull out of the fight and that night put on an incredible display of boxing brilliance and discipline. Kwawi at 5'5 was an aggressive inside fighter with a bob and weave style, similar to Joe Frazier. Spinks stayed outside and used his 
8-inch height advantage to maximum use by, tie, by tying up Corey anytime he ventured inside. Spinks won a unanimous 15-round decision and not only claimed the undisputed light heavy crown, but he also won the claim to being the best 175-pounder in the golden age of light heavyweights, which, heavyweights, which included Quarry, Mustafa Muhammad, Galindez, Lopez, and Saad Muhammad. Spinks would successfully defend his title four more times before moving up to heavyweight in an attempt to become the first reigning world light heavyweight champion to win the heavyweight championship of the world. Legendary light heavyweight champions such as Archie Moore and Bob Foster failed in their attempts to become heavyweight champion. My father felt the same fate would occur to Spinks when he signed to fight the legendary Larry Holmes for his IBF and Ring Magazine Heavyweight Championship. On the night of September 21st, 1985, Spinks entered the ring against Holmes as a 6-1 underdog. Just a few days before this fight took place, my father volunteered to enter treatment for his addiction to alcohol. Right before he left to go to the upstate New York rehabilitation facility, he had predicted that Spinks had no shot in the world because despite the fact that Holmes, at almost 36 years old, was seven years older than Spinks, Holmes' all-time great left jab would be too much for Spinks to overcome. Pop felt that Holmes' jab was all he needed to, to defeat the smaller Spinks. Shockingly, the reverse occurred. For the first 10 rounds of the fight, Spinks employed a herky-jerky style that completely threw off and confused a very lethargic and slow Holmes. For the first time in his career, Holmes' devastating jab was completely nullified by the unorthodox movement utilized by Spinks. Spinks was the first fighter I ever saw out jabbing Holmes. Holmes made a spirited comeback the, late five, the last five rounds, but it was too little too late. In winning a 15-round decision, Spinks became the first light heavyweight champion to win the heavyweight title. A few months later, on January 17, 1986, Don King and HBO announced the beginning of a heavyweight title tournament to crown an undisputed champion. One of the fights announced was a rematch between Spinks and Holmes. The rematch took place on April 19, 1986. This time, Holmes' booming, booming jab was much more effective in combating the same Spinks herky-jerky style. On a few occasions late in the fight, Holmes came very close to knocking Spinks out. When the 15th and final round ended, it seemed a foregone, foregone conclusion that Holmes had regained the title. Amazingly, Spinks retained his title via split decision. A frustrated Holmes immediately retired. After destroying French contender Stefan Tankston five months later, Spinks decided to fight Jerry Cooney instead of fighting the IBF number one contender Tony Tucker. It was both a financial and calculated reward for Spinks. Had he fought Tucker, he would have only received half a million to defend his title. Despite being stripped of his IBF title for refusing to fight Tucker, Spinks made $4 million to fight Cooney. A win over Cooney would make Spinks even more money against the eventual winner of the tournament, Mike Tyson. All Spinks had to do was beat the single most overrated heavyweight in boxing history. On the night of June 15, 1987, Spinks entered the, the, the ring that night an 8-5 underdog. My father and I laughed at these incredible odds. Cooney was a one-trick pony. All he, had, all he had was a left hook and absolutely no defense whatsoever. Spinks was too skilled a technician to lose to a fighter who, despite being three inches taller and much heavier, didn't have the skills to compete with such a master boxer. Pop placed $100 wages with six different people. That's how confident he was in Spinks winning. My mom was scared shitless as Pop lived paycheck to paycheck. A $600 loss would hurt our household exponentially. I told my mother not to worry. This was guaranteed money.
That night went exactly as we thought. Spinks completely dominated Cooney before dropping him twice in the fifth round, and referee Frank Cappuccino wisely halted the fight right before the end of the round. Inexplicably, Harold Letterman, one of the three judges, had Cooney winning three of the first four rounds. Over the next three days, my father collected his winnings and gave every single dollar to my mom. The sex between them that night had to have been some of the best sex they ever engaged in. <laughs> oh, man. I, I'm a wild boy just like my father. With Spink's destruction of Cooney and later on during the summer, Tyson defeating Tucker to win the undisputed tournament, the fight with Tyson was made. On the night of June 27, 1988, Spinks was to make $15 million, proving his strategy to abdicate his title and heavyweight title tournament a huge financial victory. It would be the only victory he achieved that evening. The fight was a complete mismatch. On the night of the fight, my father and I were at a dingy nightclub in Greenwich Village to watch the fight. The tickets were only $15 a pop, so I can't complain that much. As we sat in a packed club anticipating a the fight, my father, who was completely inebriated, predicted the fight wouldn't go 90 seconds. He was wrong. It lasted 91 seconds. The reason Pop predicted it wouldn't go 90 seconds was because Spinks delayed his ring entrance, which infuriated, infuriated, infuriated Tyson to the point where he punched a hole in the dressing room wall and that Spinks had braces on both knees. He was a sitting duck, as evidenced from the very beginning of the fight. Tyson came straight at Spinks and dropped him with a thudding right to the ribcage just over a minute into the fight. Spinks got up at the count of four. After referee Frank Cappuccino's mandatory eight count, Spinks immediately walked into a thunderous right cross that sent his head bouncing off the canvas. Spinks, in his attempt to get up, almost fell through the ropes as Cappuccino counted him out. Tyson was finally the universally recognized world heavyweight champion. Spinks, three weeks shy of his 32nd birthday, took his shot knees and $15 million payday and immediately retired. Despite being massacred in his final fight, Spink's legacy as the 15th greatest fighter of the last 45 years can't be denied. He would retire with a stellar record of 31 wins, one loss, with 21 knockouts by victory. 21 knockouts, 21 victories by knockouts. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I thank you for your support, for your listenership, until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.